Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Carl Nellis, and today we're talking with Richard Burke, professor in the history of political thought and co-director of the Center for the Study of the History of Political Thought at Queen Mary University of London. We're talking about his new book, Empire and Revolution, The Political Life of Edmund Burke. Dr. Burke, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. So I'm really excited to talk about this book. It's capacious, it's rigorous, it's also subtle, and does some really interesting things in dealing with the legacy of Burke and in kind of parsing approaches to to his life and work. Let's get started with talking about what brought you to this project. Um, Well, that's a complicated story. I uh, completed my PhD at the University of Cambridge, where I worked on romanticism, and then my first job was at... uh, University College Dublin in the city in which I'd um, grown up. And uh, Burke had obviously figured in the period in which I'd originally studied. And um, he, from that point on, from when I took my first post, began to sort of loom larger in my interests and preoccupations. But Mm -hmm. actually, that was uh, in 1991. So in a way, the question is, how on earth did I stick with the project for so long? Well, simply how did I come across it? Really, uh, I was um, started running a seminar um, with a colleague at University College Dublin on Burke, where we, you know, invited various speakers from abroad. So, I mean, that's really the kernel of where my um, sort of research interest developed. Um, so, as I say, I started uh, working on Burke in the early 90s. Uh, in the intervening period between then and finally publishing my monograph, uh, I did sort of um, work on other things as well. So, I mean, I, I worked on classics. I, I worked more, more broadly on um, Enlightenment political thought. I also worked on modern Irish history and on the issue uh, in political theory, really, of, of, of political judgment. So uh, although I was working on Burke in the early 90s, I, I did have other sort of projects um, on the go. So as I said, in a way, the question is, how did, I, how did I stick with Burke for so long? And um, the answer is really that um, really for two reasons. I mean, first of all, I became increasingly interested in the period in which he, he lived, which to me was mm. fascinating because it's the, I mean, we'll come on to some of this probably, but uh, it's the period which in which um, which saw the British conquest of India, the period in which the American Revolution took place, and the period in which the French Revolution took place. So just in terms of, as it were, the drama of high politics, um, that's the, that provided very absorbing material. But in addition, of course, um, they there were the figures, the intellectual figures, really, with whom Burke directly engaged, like David Hume and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and um, Adam Smith, you know, to the extent that he um, had friendships with some of them and certainly intellectual preoccupations with all of them, it enabled me or really obliged me to probe their work as well. So um, obviously I had an interest in Enlightenment intellectual history. And so Burke as a sort of focal point from which to approach it um, was attractive to me. So those figure, there were those figures with whom he engaged, but also um, other previous influences um, 
for instance, John Locke was a major um, influential figure for him. Montesquieu was a, a major figure, and yes. Berkeley was a major figure. So, uh, as I say, in, in both intellectually, that's to say, in the history of philosophy, but also in the history of high politics, um, Burke provided a sort of um, point of access to the late 18th century, um, which was uh, one that could certainly sustain one's um, interest. So that's both how I came to the project and how I stuck with it. So you begin the book uh, kind of positioning your work in relation to how some others have approached Burke in the past. And uh, I wonder if you could repeat some of that for our listeners. Yes, uh, of course, there's a long tradition of uh, Burke scholarship and, you know, many very fine figures have um, uh, written on him. So I suppose one does have to position oneself. oneself. And I would say that there have been um, different attempts to appropriate Burke into particular schools of philosophy, for one. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, attempts to see him as uh, fundamentally utilitarian, and second of all, attempts to see him fundamentally as a natural law thinker. So one contribution, if you like, that I make is to show that um, arguments based on utility are in any case rooted in natural law, so there's no conflict between these two positions. So, uh, as it were, a sort of generation's worth of debate based around these two alternatives is um, sort of pre- premised on false um, assumptions about how people thought in the period. So, so that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, uh, I think there have been different approaches to Burke. First of all, Burke has been seen uh, very much purely in a sort of history of ideas mold. Second of all, he's been seen uh, because of his, you know, rhetorical suasiveness and power uh, as having contributed to the world of literature. And finally, of course, um, having contributed to politics. And as a result, political historians have written on, literary critics have written on, and intellectual historians have written on. And there again, really, this um, comes back to, you know, how I started on the book. I mean, I started off, of course, as an intellectual historian and therefore writing, attempting to write a rather standard monograph on, on Burke and his his uh, role in the history of ideas. But I, I came to see that this was yeah. non-viable because, of course, from 1766 onwards, he's conducting a career in the House of Commons as, you know, um, a day-to-day working politician. So for me, it became absolutely necessary to integrate Burke's intellectual career with his um, sort of role in high politics in Britain. So I ended up sort of, I mean, it's called a political life of Burke, but really it's a political intellectual life of Burke. And I don't mm. think you could write any other. That's to say, if you were to give an account of Burke, that's what it would have to be. I mean, he's distinguished in British high politics in the 18th century precisely because he's a man of ideas. I mean, yeah. uh, that distinguishes him from standard um, members of parliament in 18th century Britain. Um, but at the same time, of course, he is not like Immanuel Kant and not like David Hume, insofar as he is um, operating in Parliament and within a political party. So I felt it very important to bring together political history and intellectual history and to contextualise the one in terms of the other, not such that one determines the other, but uh, at least the, the, so the two um, contextualising milieu, if you like, I've brought yeah. together in um, one perspective. So that was my that was my goal, really. You put it so beautifully when, in the book, you're addressing his relation to Kant and Hume, and you say that one of the things that distinguishes Burke is that his ideas were formed in, in the cut and thrust of affairs. Yeah. Um, some of the ideas that you establish as overarching themes as you trace out Burke's life and thought and how they interrelate. Um, you talk at length when you're beginning the book about the spirit of conquest and the spirit of liberty. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and how those kind of how those function for Burke and set out how they will drive your narrative forward. Yes, well, uh, whilst um, in a way I'm, 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 I'm approaching um, Burke's career as a whole and a career really, that's to say, a lived life doesn't actually have the coherence that we impose upon it belatedly. So, you know, he's, um, well, as you said yourself, quoting me, you know, he's immersed in the cotton first of affairs. You know, it's a sort of daily engagement with, with events as they emerge. But having said that, I do think that there um, uh, existed in his work um, sort of preoccupations that recurred. And uh, for me, the, there are two standout ones, and you've um, listed them. That's to say, on the one hand, a preoccupation with the spirit of conquest, and on the other hand, a preoccupation with liberty and the conditions of liberty. And these two preoccupations are re- related to one another, and they grow out, really, of Burke's historical perspective on modern European history. That's to say, he sees um, modern European history as progressively having escaped an age of darkness and oppression which he associated with the spirit of conquest, thus to say politics based on the um, attitude that you can govern by conquering. So uh, Europe escaped, uh, at least domestically, I mean it didn't escape it abroad in terms of its uh, wider imperial interests, but domestically, as far as Burke was concerned, uh, emerging first of all from, as it were, the Dark Ages, and then the wars of religion in the 17th century, uh, Europe triumphed over the spirit of conquest. Of course, I should say parenthetically, he thought it was entering into a new um, age of spirit of conquest uh, with the French Revolution in 1789, but Douglas will come back to that. Anyway, so Burke has a historical vision, as as I say, of really enlightened Europe passing from an age in which the spirit of conquest dominated, and uh, with the advent of this, uh, if you like, um, more enlightenment, more enlightened mode of uh, conducting politics, uh, liberty began to flourish. And mm-hmm. liberty to, for him was first and foremost personal or civil liberty. That's to say it's the freedom we enjoy under the protection of government. And it affected two areas in particular. First, the liberty of conscience, which was uh, fundamental and important for him and meant that all uh, religious sects ought to be tolerated. Uh, and second of all, the liberty of property. That's to say we should have the right to acquire and hold uh, our property under law. So that's the essence of liberty form. There are other debates in the period about political liberty, but um, that's another um, sort of complicated story. And uh, perhaps I'll just leave my introductory remarks about his over the overarching themes of that. Well, and when you're talking about um, where you're addressing and using the terms the spirit of conquest and the spirit of liberty, you interact a lot with the way that Burke thought about and was influenced by Montesquieu's spirit of the laws. Can you elaborate on that a little more before we launch into the historical arc? Sure. Um, well, uh, as I mentioned um, in the response to the very first question, mm-hmm. it was a very major influence upon Burke, and in fact upon everyone uh, writing in Britain, of course, France and elsewhere, including Germany, in the period. And that's really because he shifted in a fundamental way the manner in which philosophers, intellectuals, and men of business, if you like, in the 18th century approached the understanding of politics, not just in terms of, if you like, fundamental norms and natural laws, but also in terms of uh, the historical dynamics to which political processes were subject. Um, So Montesquieu's spirit of the laws is very much an historical tract, really, and it's a sort of new 
uh, approach to political science as being empirically uh, based and historically grounded. Well, that was of enormous, uh, that had an enormous influence uh, on Burke. And also, within the spirit of the laws, of course, he is surveying many different um, sites of modern European and also ancient European history, and that also had an influence on Burke. And one of his major preoccupations is, uh, of Montesquieu's, let's say, major preoccupations is, you know, what is the character of modern liberty by comparison with ancient liberty? And mm-hmm. uh, in pursuing that question, um, Montesquieu also, uh, at a particular point early on in the spirit of the laws, gives an account of the British Constitution, which is enormously influential, and uh, which, you know, Hume reacted um, to, and which, of course, Burke reacted to. So, uh, since Burke was very much thinking about his own world, first of all, Britain, and second of all, Europe, and, and there, uh, thereafter, the empires of the Europeans, um, he was very much interested in this question of what's the precise character of modern European liberty by, mm-hmm. uh, in contradistinction to the ancients, and um, then, more specifically, what is the character of British liberty in comparison with, above all, French, because Britain was in a state of re-conflict and competition with, with the French throughout the period of um, Burke's participation in high politics, but indeed uh, since the late 17th century through to um, the end of the 18th century. So situating the intellectual work that Burke was doing in his life, you begin with his being raised in Ireland, his, his uh, birth to a Church of Ireland family, though he was raised by his Catholic relatives, went to a Quaker school, um, and you note that his, his mature principles, as you say in the book, are usefully seen against his early years. So would you start us out where Burke began in Ireland? As you say, that's absolutely correct. He comes from a mixed family, really a convert family. I mean, his, his father was a member of the um, of the Church of Ireland, that's to say the Protestant Church of Ireland, which is an Anglican church, essentially. Um, but um, his family, so either he himself had been a convert, we don't know the absolute facts, or else his family was certainly, uh, were certainly converts, and his mother remained uh, a Roman Catholic, and so in fact was Burke's wife. And as you say, in addition, he went to a Quaker school. Now, in Ireland in the 18th century, there were, there were um, basically three religious sects, Roman Catholics, uh, established Protestants, and um, dissenters. So Burke had experience of all those three worlds in going to a Quaker school, a Protestant university, and having um, Catholic relations in, in, in County Cork as well, with whom he spent some time, in his, in his, a lot of time, many years, in fact, in his um, early life. So most of those worlds, that they say the worlds of dissenter and Protestant and Catholic, really were markedly separate from one another in the 18th century. So it's most unusual, really, to have a figure who um, inhabited each of these worlds. And one massive impact that that had on Burke it was to leave him uh, with a commitment to the principle of religious toleration throughout his life. So that would be um, the, my first point in relation to how his early life had an impact on him. But the second point I, I would uh, like to make is that in saying that Burke's maternal relations were Catholics, more than that, they were Catholic gentry, and they ha- were survived in a period in which um, Catholic gentry really had fallen on hard times because they were subject to a system of really um, religious discrimination known as the Popery Laws, the system of uh, legal regulation passed to, if you like, uh, regulate the Catholic faith and reduce its significance and and impact upon Irish society in in the 18th century. Um, So uh, that had a very large effect on him, as did his belief that um, the other side of his family, the Burke's side of his family, his father's side, had in fact been expropriated, that's to say, their lands had been taken 
in one of the in the Cromwellian con- conquest of Ireland in the 17th century. So he believed that his own family had been a but was a product of this spirit of conquest which had come about with the uh, wars of religion. So his concern with if you like, the indignity of conquest and the brutality of conquest um, were, struck uh, a deep chord to them. But also, interestingly, it didn't call forth in him a desire for sort of vengeance or restitution. On, on the contrary, um, it was much more instilled in him a sort of reforming spirit of moderation, whereby he didn't think the system of um, uh, property in Ireland should be um, redistributed, but rather um, property should be made stable and under a regime of toleration, Catholics should over time be able to prosper and reacquire or re, um, re-establish themselves in their, in their former condition. So that's to say two, two, two fundamental principles in answer to your question. One, early life left him with a commitment to toleration. And two, it left him in many ways with this preoccupation with conquest. So take us to, to London, take us with Burke to London and his early ambitions to have a career as a man of letters, writing history and philosophy. Yes, uh, so Burke um, graduated from Trinity College Dublin, uh, as we as we mentioned. That was in 1748, and then in, in, in spent a couple of more years in Dublin. Then in 1750, he emigrated to London. Now, his father was an attorney, and he wanted Edmund Burke, his son, uh, to be um, trained as a barrister. And to train as a barrister as uh, an Irish Protestant in the 18th century, you would attend the Inns of Court in London, um, which Burke duly did. He, um, he registered... At Middle Temple in London to acquire a legal training, but he soon actually legal training in the middle of the 18th century was quite uh, tedious in Britain because it was really massive rote learning and uh, English common law had not really been systematically organised, so it was just really mm. a matter of being deluged by facts, uh, which didn't inspire Burke. So uh, while he was studying for law, he uh, pursued other interests of his, and these were, as you say very much um, an interest in the world, uh, in the Republic of Letters, if you like, and and specifically in history and in philosophy. And uh, in relation to those concerns, first of all, in philosophy, he published, really, in a way, one of his most famous books, was, uh, which appeared in um, 1757, an acquiring to the original of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful. So an aesthetic tract, if you like, but very much uh, interested in philosophical questions. Uh, in, mm-hmm. addition, in addition, in the same period, we really from about 1756 through to uh, um, you know, the early 1760s, Burke was also involved in writing history. So he wrote um, an abridgment of English history in the period in which Hume was writing his, his rather massive six-volume history of England. Uh, he also co-wrote with a friend of his um, a history called an account of uh, the European uh, settlements in the New World, which is really a sort of contemporary uh, history of the European empires in the Americas. And he also wrote a history of the common law. So he had wide interest in history, but also in, in philosophy, as I said, and in journalism. He edited mm-hmm. um, the annual register from uh, 1758 through to uh, 1764-65. Um, and uh, so that was a major annual sort of um, uh, event in his uh, schedule. But throughout this period as well, while he was engaging in the world of letters and becoming a man of letters essentially and becoming enthralled with the, the business of literature broadly conceived, he also began to embark upon a political career, first of all becoming a secretary to 
uh, a parliamentary figure called William Gerard Hamilton. But that relationship absolutely broke down before too long because Burke was unable to pursue his intellectual interests. Uh, at one point, Burke considered uh, moving to America, but those plans never came to fruition. And um, ultimately, um, through contacts of his, he um, developed a connection with the Marquis of Rockingham in 1765, and he became his secretary. So that really transformed his life and decided for him that the uh, future would be future for him would be a life in high politics. Can you talk about how during this period he was thinking about natural society and natural religion and some of the ideas that were uh, that he was working out or working through during that time? Yes, well, that's absolutely important, and I sort of, you're, you're right to point that out, because I, I neglected to mention that. That's an enormous preoccupation of Burke's, uh, really, the, the religious question, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. In uh, the 1750s, there was a sort of temporary rebirth of deism. And, of course, deism took various shapes, but a particular deism that Burke was opposed to was the following idea, that there, were, that there was a, a god, if you like, uh, who created the universe, and then, as it were, uh, sat back, and paid no attention to the world. Therefore, uh, that's usually summarized as the view that there is a particular, that there is a general divine providence, but no particular divine providence. This is a, um, the Godhead takes no interest in our individual affairs. Now, for Burke, this was a very shocking conclusion and an unacceptable, uh, unacceptable conclusion. And it was, it was advocated in the posthumous writings of a former British politician uh, called Lord Bonningbrook. Uh, and Burke wrote a satire on Bolingbroke's works in uh, 17, uh, which he published in 1756, uh, and it was really uh, an, an attempt to extend the, the religious views of Bolingbroke into the social world, and to show how, um, by ridicule, by satir- satirical ridicule, they ex- could be exposed as foundationalists. But the fundamental point I, I take from this is that uh, Burke had a deep commitment to particular divine providence. And if I can just explain that very important concept in clear terms, what what that meant was it was very important for him uh, that human beings could see that their moral contribution to the world um, would not be without reward. So under under general providence, well, you know, God created the world, sits back, and you just get on with stuff. But, you know, um, if if you have, as it were, an unlucky life, that's just bad luck. To Burke, that was sort of unbearable to human consciousness and was vital for all sorts of reasons that people be brought to see that uh, virtue is rewarded and its reward is by virtue of fundamental principles like the immortality of the soul and the afterlife. So Burke was absolutely committed to these uh, principles uh, and he was committed to them not only in the 1750s, uh, where that's quite explicit and and clear in his published writings, but also um, throughout his career, and uh, this, these commitments emerge again in his writings on India. And I would say, fundamentally, it is simply impossible to understand Burke's writings in the French Revolution unless you understand these fundamental religious commitments of his. Just one side note. Uh, one of my favorite moments in the book is, as you're talking about that parody of Bolingbroke, uh, Vindication of Natural Society, you note that it was misunderstood as being in earnest because it was so effectively written. Indeed, that's true, yes. And even in the 1790s, People thought that there was there was an early eccentric Burke who actually held these views. So uh, Burke was obliged after the first edition to, to write a preface to the work in which he explained actually that was a satire that I'd written. So uh, <laughs> no, we certainly do know it's a satire, but indeed it, it was so effectively parodic uh, that people took it to be 
sort of um, expounding the views that it was um, seeking to expose. Can you also mention the way that the Seven Years' War caused Burke to reflect on the terms he used, our, our brute domination and the subjection to consent, when he was thinking about and working on the account of the European settlements in America? Yes, well, the, mo- the most, if, if you like, important event in international affairs in the middle of the 18th century was indeed the Seven Years' War, which lasted from 1756 to 1763. This was a major European struggle for power, which extended outwards into the uh, imperial and colonial holdings of those uh, powers. So it was a struggle between, you know, Prussia, France, uh, Britain, and so on, uh, Spain, uh, but also uh, the theatres for the war included, uh, obviously, the American colonies, uh, West Africa, uh, also uh, South Asia, um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a major conflict, uh, a world war, if you like, um, or an intra-imperial war, certainly. Um, mm. And uh, it's really that context that influenced Burke's um, work on the account of the European settlements in uh, America. And um, in that work, he does pursue this interest, uh, if you like, of how one distinguishes between politics based on, on consent and uh, politics based on domination. Um, so that's, that's the context in which he thought about those problems, but I don't know that the Seven Years' War uh, as such shaped that particular uh, thought pattern. I think that you know, his preoccupation with uh, domination versus consent emerges more clearly in his thinking about, um, for instance, America and India and Ireland, as his uh, concern with those areas developed over, over the following decades. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little about thoughts on the cause of the present discontents and some of the ideas that Burke was developing there? Well, the thoughts uh, on the cause of the present discontents is um, a pamphlet that um, Burke wrote at a particular junction in history. His own, well, let me say, he entered into Parliament, in, well, he became Secretary to um, um, the Marquess of Rockingham in, in 1765. Uh, the, the following January, that was in July, the following January, he takes a seat in Parliament. At that point, the Rockingamites are actually in government in Britain, but they fall from power. So I'm giving a sort of run-up uh, answer to your question. They, they fall from power then in the summer of 1766. Uh, and um, in this period, there is great alarm amongst the various factions in Parliament about how a government will be formed, because hitherto in the 18th century, down to 1760 in particular, uh, the Whigs formed a natural alliance with the Hanoverian regime and basically formed the government, had formed the government from you know 1720 through to 1760. Uh, but when George III came to the throne, he indicated that he would pick from all factions and parties in Parliament. This caused enormous alarm to the, the Whigs, but the Whigs failed to organise to develop a sort of common platform and how they would deal with this. So you ended up with, as it were, the Whigs being themselves factionalised. And Burke is operating within one of those factions, which is called uh, the Rockingham Whig Party. And as I said, they, they've fallen from power in 66, so they're thinking about how to regain power and therefore essentially um, how to insinuate themselves uh, into favour with um, the king without betraying their fundamental weight principles. That is the context for the uh, present discontents. Basically, the present discontents is arguing that um, 
the way in which an organized government in Britain is on the basis of political parties, that the king should select a political party which is standing in the country and standing in parliament, and that the king is failing to do that, and therefore in effect subverting the British constitution. So that's the beginning, in a way, of Burke's public battle against uh, the policies of uh, George III, and why, and it's important to remember, why really for much of his career he was a critic, not of the principle of monarchy, but of the uh, practical politics of the British monarch in the, in, in, um, the uh, late 18th century. So that's really what's going on in, in the present discontents. Mm-hmm. And this is the period when some of Burke's ideas about sovereignty and authority start to come together. Can you dig into a little bit more the way that Burke was thinking about these ideas at the time? Yes, I think that's best approach. Well, I would make the following general point that um, Burke had throughout his parliamentary career, as a result of really the way events developed, was obliged to engage with very particular issues. And the, the main issues were developments in America developments in Ireland, developments in India, uh, and developments in uh, British uh, high politics itself. Um, Now, the area in which um, sovereignty plays the biggest role, if you like, is uh, really in American affairs, uh, or Burke's engagement with the American crisis. Now, as I said, Burke comes into Parliament in January 1766, and the issue literally being... um, debated on the floor of the House of Commons at that moment is what to do about the American colonies. Now, it's good that you mentioned the Seven Years' War because the background to the American crisis indeed the Seven Years' War, uh, which had plunged, in order to fund the war, had plunged uh, Britain, indeed France as well, but that's another question, had plunged uh, Britain into very um, serious debt. And to recover Mm -hmm. its position, it was going to have to either raise more taxes uh, domestically or else within the empire. And since Britain was still defending, after all, in the Seven Years' War, France was defeated in the North American theatre. So Britain was still there uh, with an army um, defending the colonies. But of course, that cost money. And the idea was, well, perhaps the Americans can start paying for that. Uh, so the previous regime, before the Rockinghams came to power under Grenville, they had introduced a new tax called uh, the stamp, uh, a stamp tax. And when Britain, uh, when Burke came um, into Parliament, uh, the, the, that was being uh, challenged, uh, and his own party then uh, ultimately repealed it. But as they repealed it, they also asserted the right of Parliament to impose taxation. So the Rockingham position was. The um, British Parliament in London has a right to impose taxations, pr- pr- taxation, but prudentially it ought not to. Uh, and that, another way of phrasing that is to say uh, Parliament holds sovereignty, but practically it ought not to indulge all its sovereign rights. So it's really in that context that Burke's um, concern with sovereignty emerges. So it's very much being debated at the time uh, because of what was going on in America. And Burke's takes this rather... Um, sort of a complex view that um, sovereignty is indeed um, absolute, that's to say there must, within any jurisdiction, with any, within any political community, however large and complex, there must be some final um, uh, point of decision-making, uh, but nonetheless, that doesn't mean that that final sovereign decider, if you like, prudentially can impose their will as they wish, because, of course, uh, you nonetheless, even though you have the right to supreme jurisdiction, that doesn't mean that you have the capacity 
to impose your will because you are still dependent on popular opinion. So that's very much Burke's insight that government is dependent, so the state is sovereign, but government is dependent on opinion. That's his fundamental view. And it comes out very much in, in, in the American crisis, though it does impinge on area, other areas of his thought also. Mm-hmm. A couple of other uh, terms or ideas that uh, you note are really being worked out for Burke at this point are representation mm-hmm. and conciliation. And you especially note that representation needs to be understood as Burke understood it in his context. Can you flesh that out? Yes. Um, well, representation became a major preoccupation in this period, partly because of America and the claim that there was no taxation without representation. Uh, and that sparked um, a, a debate in Britain saying, well, of course, the Americans are represented. They're not uh, directly represented. They don't elect um, members of parliament, but they're virtually represented because uh, their, their sentiments are the same as our sentiments and our sentiments are represented. So they're virtually represented. And certainly that was not uh, Burke's position. Burke thought that their own assemblies should be able to vote taxes and that, uh, um, that, that those arrangements should be should be continued. Nonetheless, he was actually uh, committed to the idea of um, a virtual representation. That's to say, any politics to be, any regime, if you like, any government, uh, in order to be responsible, must be representative, in the sense that it must be um, sympathetically responsive to the population um, over whom it rules. So virtual representation is really a form of sympathy or being in tune with the um, with um, those whom you whom you represent in that capacity. However, uh, Burke didn't think that virtual representation was sufficient uh, to a, um, the best regime. The best regime would also have actual representation, and actual representation would involve actually voting for um, your members of parliament. However, it's important for him to realise that, of course, actual representation wasn't a pure cure for politics. That's to say, you could vote for rulers who weren't in sympathy with you, and then, you, then, then you'd have actual representation without virtual representation. So people generally tend to understand and misunderstand that, and they think that Burke's defence of virtual representation is, is defence of, you know, not having proper representation at all. But that's that's completely mistaken. His point is that optimally you have actual representation, i.e., elections and voting and representatives being put into office on that basis. But it's fundamental to see that it's crucial for them to represent virtually as well. That's to say, they must be, if you like, uh, be in tune with the opinions uh, of the electorate whom they represent. So they're major preoccupations uh, of Burke's with representation, but uh, and emerging really out of the American crisis. But at the same time, there were various movements in, uh, really from the 1770s onwards in Britain, to change the representative system in the um, uh, in Britain itself. And Burke... Um, is uh, friendly to some of these measures and hostile to others. He's friendly to the idea that the power of the monarch uh, in terms of um, his um, control of a budget which which could, if you like, sort of seduce uh, parliamentary members to vote in uh, the king's favour. So Burke was opposed to that. Uh, But um, he was defender of the way in which um, the House of Commons was constituted as a representative body. That's to say, he didn't want to uh, extend the franchise and he didn't want to increase um, representation of um, what were called county seats. So basically, um, the boroughs and the counties were represented in 18th century Britain and Burke thought that the balance was not one that one wanted to tamper with. So, uh, So there are many ideas 
about um, sort of um, individual representation going on at the time. That's to say, the idea that your representatives in, in a Senate or a Parliament or an Assembly or whatever are there to literally represent you, your will. Burke's um, absolutely opposed to this on two grounds. Um, uh, first of all, um, this would be a non-viable version of politics. I mean, uh, a political constitution and governmental system is there to harmonize discordant views. Well, those discordant mm. views are in society at large. If you purely replicated them in um, a parliament or an assembly, you would just get a struggle over that discordancy. So uh, that's just simply would be, uh, as it were, uh, um, anarchy produced on the, on the national stage. Uh, at the same time, Burke thought that, uh, and this is the second point, Burke thought that uh, members of parliament were there not simply to represent, but also to deliberate, to come up with the best sort of national perspective. They were there to deliver not individual good, but the general good. And that was arrived at by national debate. So you weren't there simply to represent your constituency, as it were. You were there to try and advance the interests of your constituency, but more particularly to um, harmonise those interests by a deliberative process with the national interest at large. So for Burke, mm. uh, members of parliament were there to deliberate, and deliberate me- me- meant that uh, representation wasn't literal, uh, a literal individual members of parliament standing for the will of individual members of society at large. So that is uh, a rather complex uh, position, but um, worth setting out, I think, because it's been uh, comprehensively misunderstood. Mm. So can you talk about what happens to Burke's position when he begins to study the affairs in Madras in the 1770s and um, sees that India is without, uh, in your words, without representation of any kind? Yes. And and then how he begins to think about the idea of property in relation to, and, and representation in relation to the East India Company. Okay. Uh, well, in the 18th century, um, the British, if you like, administration of India... Um, took place via uh, a chartered corporation, much like, uh, you know, had existed in America, like the Virginia Company. Well, in India, there was the East India Company. Uh, Mm -hmm. The East India Company uh, was a chartered corporation, which was therefore not the property of the government, uh, but had some sort of independent um, autonomy, if you like. Um, Now, the East India Company was there in India, in Madras and in Bengal and in Bombay, to trade, that's what it was there for. But of course, it traded from factories, and they, it had soldiers at these at these factories for protection. Over time, um, really quite suddenly, um, the East India Company ended up in conflict in Madras with um, a local Nawab uh, or ruler, um, and uh, the East India Company was victorious over that ruler. And from then on in, the East India Company had sort of acquired territorial power, without setting out to do so, but nonetheless um, did acquire territorial power in um, Bengal. That was at the uh, a victory uh, at the Battle of Plassey in 1757. And following on from that, uh, the East India Company acquired rights of taxation in Bengal again. Uh, and that meant lots of money flowing into its coffers. And incidentally, this is in exactly the same period in which uh, the British government was looking for increases in uh, taxation from the Americas. They also sought to get, lay their hands on some of this money from the East India Company. Burke opposed that because he saw the East India Company as, you know, a chartered company and one ought to not interfere with its um, autonomy. 
Um, so uh, that's really Burke's preoccupation with India takes that form in the 1760s. In the 1770s, which you uh, mentioned, then Burke re-engages with India, uh, less now with Bengal and more with Madras um, on, on the southern coast. Um, and uh, there, basically, um, members of the East India Company were lending uh, money to um, a local potentate, and in order to ensure that he was uh, that they get repayment on their debts, they were also helping him advance his conquistadorial military interest in the regime. Uh, so this was a sort of scandal, and uh, Burke became involved in the scandal, and it's this which tar- began to turn him more definitively against the East India Company. So from about 1777 through to 1782, Burke uh, develops um, a really deep interest in both Madras and Bengal, um, culminating in its attempt to uh, really um, fundamentally reform the East India Company by subjecting it to parliamentary scrutiny um, in, the form, in the form of a committee that would be established in um, the House of Commons. Uh, and that proposal for reform um, is um, referred to as Fox's India Bill, uh, but that was defeated. Um, and uh, with the defeat of Fox's um, India Bill, Burke's plans for India, it's called Fox's India Bill, incidentally Fox was a, was a colleague of Burke's in Parliament, but it was drafted by Burke himself. Uh, but with the failure of that bill, um, Burke saw no, no hope for advancing um, uh, reform of the company, which to him was a, a, d- a desperate need, because as far as he was going, I mean, interestingly, he believed that the East, by now he believed, the East India Company, company was probably uh, one of the most nefarious systems of government that modern Europe had ever seen. So, um, mm. very strong feelings about it. Um, uh, and so he decided that the only option for reforming the company, in a way, was to prosecute its governor general, um, um, Hastings, and Burke embarked upon that prosecution then from about 1785, 1786 um, uh, onwards. So that's really, incidentally, that, that prosecution ended in failure in 1794, and, and at that point the Burke retired from Parliament. So that's the arc of his career. Um, and uh, India was really one of the most important things um, to him, and his critique of the depredations, as he saw it, of the East India Company was fundamental to it. Now, why he saw the East India Company as Fundamental, uh, fundamentally unnecessarily corrupt is in itself an additional uh, interesting question. Mm-hmm. You also close the book working through ideas of, uh, that Burke deals with in his reflections on the revolution in France mm-hmm. and on um, changed perceptions of Burke over time. Um, maybe could you give us just two minutes on that, maybe uh, you know, a tease for, for how the book ends. Sure. Well, what I'd like to say particularly uh, is that uh, the, you know, the Burke's engagement with the French Revolution of 1789 transformed his career, propelled him onto the world stage, and this is the, this, this is the great event of the era. People uh, believe that nothing like it had a, a, ever occurred before. It was sort of shocking. It was the picture of a great power disintegrating under the weight of, of, of revolution. It was applauded by many and strongly criticized by Burke. Now, the fundamental thing that readers of Burke misunderstand or fail to grasp is that his critique of the revolution was not a critique from a position of established conservatism, which really had more or less no meaning in the late 18th century. I mean, the phrase, the word conservatism didn't exist, and the position didn't very meaningfully exist either. Burke's perspective was actually as follows, that the revolution was a throwback piece of barbarism, not a bid for modernity, but was in fact a massive reaction against the civilizing, moderating forces of modern history. 
So um, Burke's reflections on the revolution of France and the other writings on France are very much a defense of a progressive um, enlightened ideology against what he sees as the forces of darkness in European history, which have just re-emerged now with the revolution. And the force of darkness for three reasons, and I'll just mention these um, to try and, as it were, snappily answer your question. First of all, he saw the revolution as a challenge to um, fundamental um, principles in religion, and we discussed that, and uh, um, uh, you, can, you can see what Burke was particularly appalled by. Second of all, he thought the revolution was an attack upon property. Uh, now, this was absolutely catastrophic for Burke, because as far as Burke was concerned, large holdings of property uh, were the only possible defense which small holdings of property had. That's to say, with the fall of one um, um, area of the property regime, all property will um, be insecure, and therefore small property holders will also be imperiled. So his defense of property is not a defense of wealth, it's a defense of the institution of property, which he thinks is a precondition of civilization. And by the way, that's not an eccentric view, that's the view of you know, Thomas Paine's defender of property, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's defender of property, John Locke's defender of, defender of property. Challenges to property really only come later in European history. So you know, Burke is not unusual there, he's... Uh, his view is standard, except that his position is the revolution is challenging this, this fundamental pillar of civilization. And finally, the third pillar of civilization, which he thinks is challenging, is what he called prescription. The idea that um, you know, government authority can draw upon the authority of the past. In other words, that you can, you can build on past practices as conferring legitimacy on current ones. Once you lose that, that principle, prescription, uh, you're uh, likely to be sort of plunged into uh, governmental anarchy. So there are the three principles he was defending, and uh, as the, the challenge to those he saw was a reactionary challenge, and he believed that he was advancing progressive principles in relation to that reaction. Richard, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us today. Sure. Um, before we let you go, can you just tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Um, well, my, my major project at the moment is a history of democracy. And, you know, I, I, uh, a pivotal part of, of that history is the Enlightenment. But, of course, I, I, I'm, my net is, is wider than that. I mean, I, I've studied classes as well. So I, I'm going to start with the Greeks and the Romans um, and then... Um, uh, you know, to then take up the modern story. So, uh, um, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been interested in democracy and I've taught a course in it for some period of time. And so, you know, I, I want to focus on a sort of wider uh, history, which takes in sort of various figures and, and sort of diverse um, historical scenarios next. And so that, that's the next task. Richard, thank you. We'll keep our eyes out for that in the future. Okay. Thanks very much for joining us on New Books in Intellectual History. Today we've been talking with Richard Burke about his new book, Empire and Revolution, The Political Life of Edmund Burke. Richard, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much, Carl.